Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of this book interview podcast done in collaboration with the Asian Review of Books and the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Most of our discussions about how technology will change the world focuses on the global cities that drive the world economy. Even in countries like China, we focus on its major cities, Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen. Xiaowei Wang corrects this metronormativity in their recent book, Blockchain Chicken Farm, and other stories of tech in China's countryside which explains how rural China is not just adapting the technology used around the world, but innovating on it. Xiaowei Wang is the creative director at Logic Magazine, whose work encompasses community-based and public art projects, data visualization, technology, ecology, and education. Their projects have been featured in the New York Times, the BBC, CNN, Vice, and elsewhere. Today, Xiaowei and I will talk about the frontiers of technology that are being charted in rural China and why China's countryside may be the best place to understand how technology, capitalism, and society will intersect in the coming years, often in not altogether positive ways. So, uh, Xiaowei, perhaps it's best to start um, by talking about rural China as a place to do this kind of writing and, and reporting. Um, as I mentioned, in the show, most I think of our conceptions of contemporary China seem to be driven by what's happening in Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen. Um, but how much, I mean, but I guess, what, what's kind of contemporary China like out in these rural villages? And how much has, let's say, quote-unquote, global capitalism uh, penetrated these villages in second-order towns? Yeah, so that's a great question. We definitely, um, when we think about Chinese tech, it's always the image of Shanghai or, you know, these high-tech dystopias. But one of the things that I really like to frame is, you know, being both in the U.S. and also in China, when we talk about Chinese tech, people are like, oh, you know, I, it, I, is like privacy a concern in China? And the answer is always cultural. But actually, it's important to look at the rural because it gives us an understanding of tech in China in a radically different way. So as context, right? Um, you know, the U.S., there's like all kinds of infrastructure deep inside um, rural areas. And in China, it's just a country of enormous economic development um, over the past like 20 or 30 years, really highly condensed. So that project of economic development, despite what it seems like uh, to Western media, um, it's not finished. Um, there's still parts of rural China where you go. Um, it's quite difficult to get there. There might not be a paved road. You would have to walk along a mountain footpath. Um, and all of that is changing very rapidly alongside with some of the policies that are being put forth with um, the uh, central uh, government. Um, and it's fascinating because these areas are undergoing economic development in such, a, I would say, globally um, high tech age. So it's immediately from like zero to a hundred miles per hour. Um, you get like a village in the next year, like a village that's, you know, doesn't have even a wastewater infrastructure in it yet. And then next year it's like become a Taobao village selling things, um, on an e-commerce store. So yeah, I think it's quite 
extensive the reach of global capital into the countryside. And it's also just fascinating to watch that kind of speed. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, all these development guys they always talk about kind of leapfrogging in theory is an, oh, we can leapfrog the initial stages. But it seems like, um, and, I, and I think your book kind of goes through this, so like, this, this is what leapfrogging actually looks like in practice with all of the um, opportunities and strange scenarios that that leads to. Yeah, it's, I think it is definitely a fantasy of leapfrogging because on the ground, right, um, things out turn out always wildly different than expected. I think there's also this constant element of human creativity, ingenuity that's going to both hack the systems and also push against them um, that I always really am fascinated by. Um there were definitely places that I visited that didn't make it into the book where the development, the economic development, the, you know, sort of push of technology into the village was extremely linear. Um, and in some ways, just kind of like, okay, they did the thing that, you know, the party, local party secretary said that they were going to do is very top down. People were doing things in a straightforward manner. Um, and there wasn't as much friction or tension. Um, so the places that I talk about in my book definitely exhibit that kind of tension, right? When like all of a sudden a village confronts global capitalism by making like snow white costumes, what happens there? Um, I guess one more question about rural China before we start talking about some of the people and companies you write about in your book. Um, but I guess what's the level of, of tech penetration in rural China? You know, like what kind of, what sorts of devices do they have? What's their level of you know, quote unquote, tech literacy, which I know is probably a loaded term, but um, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so, you know, in the best way that I can without overgeneralizing, it's definitely very regional, right? Um, and it's very geographical too and constrained by geography. So for areas that are less mountainous, um, maybe closer to Beijing and kind of like flatlands, um, places like Shandong, um, you know, rural tech is like very much, you know, common. People have cell phones. Um, people have extremely fast like cell phone service, 5G in some areas now. Um, but then in other places that I visited that are more mountainous, it's just actually difficult to set up that material infrastructure. You're getting in, you know, fiber optic cables, um, all these things from a long way off. And so it still does take time. And I think we tend to forget that there is a physical infrastructure behind ta uh, behind the internet. But yeah, it, it takes, it really depends on the geography of the area. So I think going into now, I think some of the, some of the companies and people you talk about in your book, um, I know you probably get this question a lot, but I have to ask. Uh, so what is the titular uh, blockchain chicken farm? So the <laughs> blockchain chicken farm was this tiny free-range chicken farm that I visited um, in uh, rural Guizhou. And the farmer there, he had been raising free-range chickens for a long time, but due to the issues of food safety, um, Throughout China, he and just low levels of trust around food, it was very difficult for him to fetch the price that he needed for these free-range chickens. 
Um, and so as part of uh, an influx of new county officials, especially a lot of like younger folks um, who are moving back home um, after getting educated in the city, having all these kinds of new connections, um, there was, you know, a connection made to a Shanghai company that does uh, blockchain chickens <laughs> where uh each chicken has kind of like a Fitbit attached to their ankle. And so it's a pedometer, it records the number of steps. Um, there's cameras that are watching these chickens uh, to make sure that they truly are free range chickens and they're, you know, healthy, all that. Um, and all this information uh, is put onto a proprietary blockchain. Um, so it's stored on this uh, on link uh, insurance companies, blockchain. And it also has this QR code, which you can scan. And when you, as a consumer, scan that QR code, you'll see like a cartoon chicken smiling and all the information. So you can rest assured that, uh, you know, you're buying a real free range chicken and not a, um, you know, not a fake. I guess, do you have any, any indication that that it works. I mean, it, it works in the sense of reassuring the consumer that this is a real free range chicken. Um, or is it just like kind of, it's, it's just kind of treated as the same as, you know, a sheet of paper saying the same thing. Yeah. So what I found really fascinating is that, um, you know, despite all the promises of blockchain and how it's going to solve these food safety and provenance problems. Ultimately, when you scan the QR code, right, it just takes you to this website with all this information. And you could very easily uh, throw together a website with information and not, you know, a lot of it can be faked. Um, I think in many ways, and it's not just within China, but also globally, you know, these buzzwords, they become, you know, almost marketing speak. It's kind of like a ploy to, you know, essentially jack up the prices on food if you're getting like a fancy blockchain free range chicken versus, you know, one that is promised to be free range, but it may or may not be. Um, I also thought it was really fascinating, similar to, you know, you talked about these like um, tech for development folks talking about leapfrogging. When I actually talked to the local county officials and the farmer, I asked them, well, what's blockchain? Like, how do you feel about blockchain? How do you feel about Chihuahuan? And they were just like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, they had never, they were like, what is Chihuahuan? I've never heard of this. And they almost thought that I was making fun of them. Um and I was not, but things got pretty awkward. So I think it was this really stark contrast between, you know, the optimism and promises of the tech, but at the same time, how it ends up being a marketing ploy and also the people who are using it and really depending on it in this very deep way for their livelihoods end up having no ownership um, and no sense of agency over it. Um Moving on to another kind of thing you talk about in, in blockchain chicken farm, um, I wanted to ask about the Taobao villages. I remember these things making headlines a few years ago, at least for me based in Hong Kong. Um, but even so, I'm still, me personally, and I'm sure people around the world aren't, don't really know or understand what, what these Taobao villages are. Um, I was hoping you might explain kind of 
you know, I guess, what is a Taobao village? And what did you find when you went and, and actually did some reporting there? Yeah, so Taobao villages, I think, especially in recent years, have been held up as this kind of ideal uh, economic development model. Um, what it is, is, you know, the way that they start, it differs, right? But the particular ones that I went to, um, it was oftentimes that, you know, a person who was uh, born in the village, you know, they migrated to the city for work, had to come back to their hometown um, for family care duties or any number of reasons. And when they got to their hometown, they were like, well, what am I going to do in this village? And, uh, you know, this particular place that I visited, um, the first entrepreneur, he had, you know, some experience making uh, these performance costumes so for like TV, stage, screen. And he, you know, was like, oh, I, I know about Taobao, which is this huge e-commerce site. Um, I can start my own Taobao store and I'll put these costumes on my store. And so he basically, you know, you can imagine it, I guess, a parallel for American listeners. Um, it's like someone in a small village starting like an Etsy shop. Um, but the way that they develop from there um, is very different than an Etsy shop. It's not like artisanal handcrafted stuff. Um, it's very much like, you know, serious, pretty serious, small to mid-scale manufacturing all done, um, you know, oftentimes in a family's home, um, it's definitely, I saw scenes where I was like, wow, there's no safety regulations. I'm deeply concerned. <laughs> um, you know, you have grandmothers who are running the family Taobao business and they're like putting labels onto envelopes and they're, you know, helping put together orders. Uh, it's this really bizarre mix. And on top of that, uh, Alibaba has um, a rural development uh, research institute arm, um, and they mon they kind of look at these Taba villages every year, very on the ground. They hire a lot of like you know people with PhDs and social science research backgrounds, um, and there really is this interest to like cultivate these villages. You know, not just that there's one entrepreneur, but that the entire village is really a whole manufacturing ecosystem. Um, there's definitely some people I've talked to where they're like, well, this is reminiscent of, you know, the 70s and 80s in China, where it's similar to town and village enterprises, you know, parts of like Shenzhen, the urban village where one village like just makes chairs or something and like each household makes a specific part of the chair. Um, so there are there are historical precedents, but because everything is centered around Taobao, Alibaba, using Alipay, um, it really becomes uh, very eerie and claustrophobic. Yeah, this is this is a good segue to my to my next question, um, where it seems like you know your your big tech firms in China, you know Alibaba, Tencent, um, Netties, they have their fingers in more places and are far more pervasive than than their counterparts outside of China. I want to note like one thing you like one sentence from your book which is it was it right now delicious chef lauded pork in China is being produced by Netties, one of the world's largest most profitable internet gaming companies. Um 
so I guess my question is kind of um, why do you think that 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 these big huge Chinese tech firms um, seem to be far more is, is that they they have their fingers in more places they're they're kind of involved in more things they're doing more things than than your American or your European big tech company. Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know contrary to the Western belief that China's like you know sort of like the government has dictated everything and there's no room uh, to do things. I mean, there's no room to do certain kinds of things, but these large companies certainly have enough capital and power to go forth. Um, I think as we're seeing, especially with the failed and financial IPO, a lot of these tech companies, like, you know, again, the overall economic development is happening so rapidly in China that regulations are being written um, as as those business new businesses happen. Um, you know, I think there's just a lot more capital flowing around. I think, you know, shareholders probably react very differently. Um, and there's, I'm sure if like, you know, I just remember when Amazon, they tried to buy, uh, what is it? Whole Foods, right? Like there's this whole lengthy process of regulation and all these things that happen. Um, and there's just a lot more speed in the process in China where it's like, yes, Alibaba will just start its own supermarket, but it doesn't even need to buy a supermarket. Um, yeah, it's just a lot, yeah, a lot more easy, I think, for companies to do that kind of thing. Okay, so I think now I want to move on to some of the some of the let's say bigger themes and, and broader concepts um, you kind of hint at in your book. Perhaps I want to start with your idea of kind of metro normativity, which you bring up in your introduction. You know, I I was I was struck by your by your statement about the difference between um, let's say you know urban and rural communities and how they see the world. I think the way you to paraphrase it, you say. Um, urban culture is driven by a need to kind of correct the universe, whereas rural culture perhaps sees it as um, already existing and or trying to preserve a uh, universe that's already in balance. Um, I guess, how did you see this difference from, from your work in China? And is it even unique to China? Yeah, so I, I feel like, you know, it is maybe not unique to China, but it is unique to a specific kind of farming and a scale of farming, right? Um, I think in that sense, like, it's always really incredible to me. Like, you know, there's, I, I think many people may not know this, but in China, a lot of the farmers are still smallholder farmers where they're farming pieces of land that are smaller than a football field. Unlike in the U.S., where it's like these large industrial farms, and so you, you know, with smallholder farmers, you still have this connection to the land, this connection with labor, um, which is not to overly romanticize it, right? Um, but it's just a different way of being in the world, right? You're reliant on your community. Um, to the villages, like the places that I visited, it was very much like. You know, the people in your village, they were your community. You would like harvest the fish and the rice and the vegetables that you grew every year. Um, if you didn't have enough, you could rely on your neighbors. Um, and that was just kind of the cycle of life. Um, I think, you know, it, 
was also just really <laughs> obvious. Um, I would go to these villages and a lot of farmers would just be like, why are you here? Right. Like it wasn't just that one farmer I talked about in my book. Like a lot of people were just like, what are you doing here? Um, and I think it was this kind of just view like, oh, of course, you're like an urbanite who wants to write this book about us, like you're making your own life so complicated. Um, it was this very like funny, many funny moments of just this juxtaposition and different values. Um, and it was pretty funny along the way. Um, but yeah, it's just a totally, I think before I started researching this book, a unimaginable um, for like kind of life um, in which you were really just so connected to other people and reliant on other people who are like directly in your day to day. So your book also deals with the idea of trust. Um, and I think especially, I think especially with issues of food safety, how, um, how people have shifted their trust to the private sector, you know, things like, like HEMA and for within Alibaba rather than the government. Um, I guess, first of all, you know, why, why has this popped up in China? Also, also, is it even unique to China? And what do you see are some of the repercussions of this? Yeah, so it's definitely not unique to China. I think that the way that we talk about it in recent years, it's like especially heightened because of, you know, um, the certain things that the government does both to cover up, um, you know, speech about food safety. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of like, oh, but like, I thought China was so advanced. How is this still happening? Um, if you look throughout history um, in many countries, including the U.S., right, like there's definitely in this period of uh, pretty problematic food safety. And that comes when uh, farms start to, instead of being small farms, um, you know, start to move into industrial agriculture, you have like a lot more manufactured foods, um, you have this, you know, kind of different scale of food production. Um, in the US that resulted in these like food safety laws uh, that were passed like in the early 1900s. And so it makes sense that, you know, in China, where you have a lot of these small farmers, instead of producing food, you know, for themselves, or like the local market, they're like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to become like I used to be a dairy farmer, like now, or like I had one or two cows, like now I'll become a dairy farmer for this huge corporation. Um, and when it comes to that, right, like you're dealing with the corporation, and the corporation is going to have all kinds of requirements for you as a small farmer and really going to try and squeeze every profit out of you. And so as a result, right, like, you know, unfortunately, um, their issues of adulteration come up when people are trying to make that extra profit. Um, so I'm I'm going to make a potentially bold claim based off of based off of your book, um, and you can tell me whether or not you agree or disagree or agree in part or whatever. Um, it seems like if if we want to understand how technology is going to change the way societies operate and how you know society interacts with 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 capitalism and the economy and all this stuff, um, China and maybe even rural China may be a better place to look than the United States or Europe or other advanced economies. Um, would this would this be an, an accurate statement to make, or or is only right in part? 
I I mean, I agree with that. I think that it's both in terms of the processes that are happening in China right now, where it's like, you know, the combo of smallholder farmers and extreme high tech, and then this need to, you know, like, I mean, quite honestly, every advanced industrial country, right, like from Europe, to, like European countries to the US, like the countryside has become a landscape of industrial agriculture. Well, in China, like what's going to happen with that, right? You're going to have a lot of people who are going to be pushed off their land. Um, so I think it is this really set of interesting processes that are happening right now unfolding in China that is, you know, gives a taste of maybe other places too. I've talked to some folks who are like, oh, like maybe this will happen um, with people who focus on tech in India, right? Which also has a lot of smallholder farmers, like you know, also similar, perhaps similar processes. I think on a very practical, pragmatic scale too, um, just the research in rural China has really shifted my sense of like being in America. So I think the best encapsulation I can give is like, you know, I had never realized the like entangled web of e-commerce and like the small scale manufacturing which makes sense because a lot of uh, places are moving manufacturing outside of Chinese cities because it's gotten a lot more expensive. Um, and so I just see stuff in the day to day in the US, like, you know, Trump hats or like these very patriotic American stickers. And I'm like, oh, you know what? That's like probably something that's like being made in rural China right now. <laughs> like, that's. I, and people don't even think of it, right? And that's just always super ironic to me. Well, well, that's right. I think like you're, you're, one of the chapters in your book talks about how, what is it, the the multi level marketing schemes and the drop shipping that happens in the U.S. is all being fueled by these small scale rural entrepreneurs selling stuff through through Taobao and other platforms. Yeah, I think that you know I had before researching the book, like vaguely, you know, we always think like China, factory of the world. And then, you know, in my mind, my, uh, that image would always go to like Shenzhen and end there. Um, but actually seeing these small scale manufacturing, like on the ground, especially with the um, multi, multi-level marketing scheme. I mean, it's really enabled by just the blossoming of all these tiny small firms that can compete on price they have to compete on speed. Um, and yeah, it's, it's like endlessly fascinating. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly, certainly here in Hong Kong, like everyone says, oh, if you just need a thing and it's slightly, even if what, this thing that's like slightly unique, just go on Taobao and you'll find whatever you want. Um, exactly. Including things like, including things like bootleg copies of popular board games. Um, but but I think this this discussion of, of of how you know these things the United States intersect with with um, with Chinese technology is a pretty good segue I think I think to the the last question I want to ask and we're kind of bringing in the current affairs hook here. Um, so obviously Chinese technology or technology uh, produced by companies that are owned or have significant ownership shares from China or from Chinese companies they've become a subject of controversy in the United States and a few other countries. Um, obviously, as we just talked about, your, your book touches on how Chinese tech interacts with, with, 
countries outside of China. But I wondered if you might expand on on these connections and maybe the the politics or of this um, a little bit more more broadly. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, you know, uh, definitely on my mind, especially as we well hopefully transition to a new president in the U.S. But um, before that, uh, I co-wrote a piece with Anshao Mina on Slate about um, the politics of the WeChat ban. And I had also written um, an article uh, for The Nation about the kind of performance of this TikTok ban. So I think in the very specific context of the Trump administration, right, um, like all these bans on Chinese tech, this anti-China sentiment um, is actually done through very shoddy legislation. Um, if you look closely at all of it, right, um, at least the way that the Trump administration has approached it, it's really to kind of stoke the support of his base, to stoke the fears of st- socialism, big government, this idea that big government, aka China, is like spying on all of its own citizens as well as people outside of China. Um, the specifics of those bans, uh, you know, again, very poor legislation. And so what that leads to is just like TikTok suing the US government. And, you know, people can still use TikTok here. But like, you know, the implications of those bans have far reaching consequences in terms of like digital security, digital security rights, at least in the US. Um, And that's like, you know, a deeper conversation about just privacy legislation, um, regardless of the apps country of origin that needs to be had within the US. Um, And on the other hand, like due to shoddy legislation, you know, so if one if one issue is like this bad legislation makes it so that it actually um, overreaches digital uh, into the realm of individuals' digital rights um, without considering bigger policy, uh, the other side of that too is that you have things like you know Dahua or Hikvision banned companies still being able to sell their equipment. In the U.S., um, you know, there's recent stories of Hikvision and Dahua temperature monitors being used on Amazon, Amazon warehouse workers, um, you know, to check for COVID. And so these things are still able to happen because the legislation is so bad. So I think, you know, a significant majority of it has been performance. But that being said, I think that you know, Biden is a far more uh, effective legislator and is able to do things multilaterally. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. And maybe like, you know, ultimately it is an economic (laughs) bid, um, which makes sense uh, living under capitalism, um, a nationalist economic bid. And yeah, it might might be a Biden administration might actually be more effective in trying to curb Chinese tech. Yeah, and and I wonder, of course, how how Chinese tech companies will react as well. I mean, I'll tell you, like here in Hong Kong, we've gotten stories about how how Chinese tech companies are shifting from trying to raise money in U.S. stock markets to raising money in Hong Kong stock markets because of you know potential for U.S. government pressure. 
um, before it was rather unceremoniously postponed. The uh, Ant IPO was supposed to be happening this week, although um, not at the moment. Um, I guess, I mean, it, it could be, if, you're not comp- if you don't have any indication about what you, how you think Chinese tech companies are thinking about the United States, um, that's fine. But I guess, do you, I guess, do you have any um, thoughts about how Chinese tech companies are looking at um, opportunities outside of China? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them are already pivoting to be outside China and in Singapore, right? That's like uh, the natural, natural conclusion. I think also, you know, it's really like in the case of Tabao Villages, China, Alibaba was like, okay, we're going to have our eye, um, you know, specifically on countries throughout Africa. And I think that's also um, another avenue is like looking outside the kind of European, uh, North American context, right? But yeah, that's also just a, another can of worms. <laughs> okay. So I think with that, um, that's all the questions I have. Uh, thanks again um, to everyone for listening in. Uh, before we wrap, uh, Xiaowei, where can people find your work? And is there anything you'd like to share about what you're working on next? Um, so people can follow me on Twitter. I'm just, uh, my screen name is XRW. Um, and I usually post most of my work there. Um, what's next is, uh, thinking, researching, writing a lot more on the body and medical tech. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts, including our review of Blockchain Chicken Farm. Uh, you can follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's Book Reviews, plural, Asia. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, thank you again, Xiaowei, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. 